Good morning, Impactors. How are you? Well, gang, we got a lot to cover, so we got to dive right in. Turn to Luke chapter 5. Let me have you stand in honor of God's Word, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses to you. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gesenerat, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. You ever read the word of God and it seems like useless information is included? Be honest, come on. I mean, this is one of those times. I've, I've read this before and I go, and they're washing their nets, and I'm reading it going, thanks for throwing that in. Do, do I care that they're washing? Actually, you're going to see there's no useless information in the Bible. There's nothing that's put in there that doesn't have some value. This is actually very important. They're washing their nets. And I'm going to get back to it for those of you hanging at the edge of your seat for why they're washing their nets. Uh, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little bit from land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and got nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets in the deeper water. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that the boats began to sink. It's quite a harvest. But when Simon Peter saw it, now this is incredible. This is so odd. Look what he does. When he saw a lot of fish in a net, so many fish, a great catch, he fell to his knees and said to Jesus, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Doesn't that seem like an overreaction? He falls to his knees, depart from me. This is a miracle. I mean, this is, this is an incredible thing. And he, but he's seen a lot of things. And this one makes him go. So we'll get back to that as well. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken in. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. So they're in the fishing business together. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. So in your Bible, say, you'll be fisher of men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. You can be seated. Father, please open the eyes of our heart. Open the, our ears of our heart, Lord. Not that we would take in facts, Lord, but we would understand today on just this one message that is both a continuation of our, our series in Luke, and also, in many ways, a closing out of all in. Uh, God, you want all of us, every part of us, Lord, not just a piece, not 99%, but every part of us, Lord, and that's what it means to be a true follower. Help us to get it and embrace it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you want to be a doctor today, um, I've heard, my wife's a chiropractor, and, and you know, people in the medical profession, profession, they're saying that right now, things are tough. Uh, to be a doctor because, I mean, there's malpractice lawsuits. If you do one thing wrong, you could be sued for millions of dollars. Even if you do something right and somebody misrepresents it, you could be sued for millions of dollars. You can, you can actually go through 12 years of school and then get into practice, and because of the way some of the laws and insurance are set up now, you don't even make enough money to even pay your, your student loans back. You might not be able to diagnose to patients what they really need. Instead, you might have bureaucrats saying, this is all you can do. It can be frustrating. So it's a gamble today, a little bit. Not what it was. But there's some pros, too. You can still help people who need it. If you're a believer, you can still help them physically, and that'll give you an incredible platform to be able to talk to them about spiritual things. 
You know, and if one of my kids wanted to be a doctor, I think the one thing that I would do to give them an edge is there's something doctors have to do, so I would just make sure that theirs was a success. And you know what I'm about to tell you. I mean, you know what this is, even if you, all you do is watch Grey's Anatomy or, or ER or something, or even Scrubs. It's on, it's on there, all of them. You know that after you finish all the schooling, you're not done, right? You got to do a two-year internship. Now, can you imagine if you did all the schooling, you went to a great school, but you got stuck in an internship with someone who didn't know what they're doing, some, some hack? That would be terrible. At the end of the internship, you've got to unlearn everything that you've learned. So, I mean, if I was going to be, I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, I would hope I'd get with someone who's, who's operated even on the, the knees or the shoulders of professional athletes, and he's very, very, then I could learn from the best. You know, but, uh, and I would hope and pray I didn't get some hack. Because I'll spend the next two years, at least, unlearning, you know, the, the horrible diagnosis they gave and the terrible way they do surgery, all that. You've got to unlearn it. It just extends the whole thing. Now, if you were going to learn to be like God, if you were going to learn to be a Christ follower, if you were going to learn to be a dynamic Christian, who would be the best person to intern with, period? You guys are sharp. Jesus. The first service said God, and somebody, only one person said Jesus, and I said, you're okay. Same thing, Right? Jesus is God, and the best person to internship by far would be if you could internship with God. Now, this is the beginning, gang, what I just read to you, of a two-year internship with the Son of God. This is the Jesus internship program. For the 12 disciples, this is the beginning of a two-year internship. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now, going, wow, he's our pastor, and he doesn't even know that it's three years, not two. Yes, I do. I didn't say Jesus' ministry was two years. I said this is the beginning of a two-year internship, the Son of God. Because Jesus has been hanging around with most of these disciples, and probably most of you didn't know this, for a good year before he ever says to Peter, James, John, and then later on, as we pick up the RX series, probably in sometime in October, or late September again, you'll see Matthew and some of the others that he calls. He's been hanging around. They've been seeing things from Jesus, miracles. They've been listening to his teaching before he ever said, follow me. Sometimes there's a misrepresentation, I think, in some of the films that are out there. Even some preachers, I've done it, where you sort of are left. Tell me if I'm right on this. You're sort of, and I'm going to yell a little bit because you left the first three rows empty. What's up with that? Left them empty. You just sat back there. Um, this, this, this misrepresentation that somehow Jesus just walked along the shore that day in Capernaum and said, um, look at that fisherman. What's your name? Peter, follow me. That was it. And he used those eyes, those God eyes. Follow me. And it was like, it was like Star Wars or something. There was the force. And he used it on Peter. And Peter just went, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'll follow you. It wasn't like that at all. Not at all. There was a, in fact, Jesus will, I can't think of many cases in in scripture where he just comes in an instance and says, exercise blind faith. You don't know anything about me. Never heard a thing about me. Just follow me. We have this, this, mis, this notion that that's the way it went. Something so incredible happened in a moment's time that people are just bowled over. And so some of you are not following Jesus right now because that hasn't happened to you. Well, good news. That didn't happen to them either. That's not the way that it went down. And it's very important that we know this. A couple more reasons why I know that this had been going on a while and that they'd been hanging out. One I already mentioned, it was um, 
Well, actually, I'm gonna, there's about five of them. I'm going to cut it short because I went like 55 minutes in the first one. So let me cut it down to these. Here's an obvious one in the very first sentence of the scripture I just read. There was what following Jesus around? Five people? Look at it. Crowds. Oh, how did that happen? Why would crowds be following Jesus around? Well, obviously, he tweeted something. And it went viral. Obviously, put a YouTube video out and the thing just got out of control. That's what happened. That's, how, that's why everybody showed up for the party, right? No, they don't have any of this stuff. So it takes time. When there's crowds gathering back then, word of mouth had to get out. Josephus, the uh, great historian, said there were 204 towns, little towns or cities, around the Sea of Galilee alone. I bet Jesus hit every one of them. And he loved to preach in the synagogues. So gang, he's been out there doing this since he was baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan River up in the Jerusalem area. He's been going to synagogues. He's been teaching. He's been doing miracles. Now, for some of you, this is upside down. You've never heard this before. You thought all three years, day one, he called the disciples. They're camping out together for three years. That's not how it went down. And this should be a great relief for you because if it went down the other way, then I'm doing something wrong. I must be doing something wrong. Gang, at this point in Luke, Jesus has likely met all the disciples. He's, probably, he's likely met them all already. And then some of you are probably thinking, what about the time he walks by the tax booth and Matthew's there and he says, follow me. He doesn't say anything there. It looks like he just met him. He's walking by the tax booth. Yeah, but it never says that he didn't walk by that tax booth before where Matthew worked. In fact, he likely did. Matthew's heard his teaching and Matthew's seen the miracles. He's been there. This time, when you see it coming up later, when we pick back up, when he walks by this time, he's ready and Jesus said his time, follow me. That's how it went down. Not blind faith, but some ability to see something of what Jesus can offer, and you weigh it out. Scripture calls it counting the cost. And true followers have to do it. They have to count the cost. You know, my wife and I want you guys to see some of this. So here's a couple of other things, too. Jesus is, has, has met. When did he meet uh, Peter, do you think? You're not going to see it in Luke. This is not when he met Peter. You know where you'll see it in the early chapters of John? In fact, write this down. This is a good tool for you to get as believers. Go out and buy a harmony of the Gospels. Go out and buy a harmony of the Gospels. Well worth getting. You didn't write that down. That hurts my feelings. Harmony of the Gospels. Do you know what that is? It takes all the Gospels and puts them in harmony. It's obvious, right? Puts them together and puts it in chronicle. chronicle puts them in order by date of events, Right? And what chronological order? There it is. And so you see what Jesus did first, who he met first, and how it went along. And sometimes you'll see things in John, the events taking place first. And you might not see the very, I don't remember exactly how it went, but you might not see the very next first event in Luke listed till five chapters of Mark have gone by. But that puts an order. It's a valuable thing because you'll see how things really unfolded. And by combining the Gospels together, you realize that Andrew and Peter met Jesus closer up by Jerusalem, by the Jordan River. They traveled with him to Galilee, to Capernaum. Jesus went back to Nazareth. Then Jesus went back to the house of, of Peter and his family and stayed there for a while. Then he went back to Nazareth. Then he went back to their house and lived a while. How do I know this? I know that right after, there's another instance in Luke where he left the synagogue and then went back to Peter's house to get dinner. He was expecting dinner, but the mother-in-law of Peter, which tells us something else about Peter, what? Peter's married. Freaking you out yet? And he healed Peter's mother-in-law and then they had dinner, and then it says crowds were waiting outside the door. Well, how'd the crowds get there in Capernaum? Because they knew Jesus was there. He'd been there. He stayed there for months. 
kind of puts a different spin on it, a little different, little different deal. Now, my wife and I have been to Israel, so I want to show you a couple things you're about to see, like hopefully really soon. Can we put that up there? This is the temple that still remains in Capernaum. You can walk in that thing. Obviously, the roof's gone and two of the sides are gone, but the whole back wall there is still there. That's exactly the temple, Jesus' favorite temple, sorry, synagogue, same thing really, that Jesus taught in. That's his favorite one, the one in Capernaum. And what's wild about this is he taught at every town of all those 204 towns, nearly every single one would have a synagogue like this and the houses would be around it. So show that next slide there. I only have a couple inches before the cliff. What do you think these are, gang? See the burn thing? Somebody in the first service said grills. No, those are not early barbecue grills. These are houses. Those are the remains of houses. So zoom out here a little bit if you would, uh, Kendall, and you'll see kind of from a helicopter's 10,000 foot view what this looks like. The temple we just saw is right there. Michelle and I have walked in that temple. And like we do normally today in modern worlds, we ruin things. That's where Peter's house was located. They've put like a glass dome over it. You can go inside and look down at the remains of Peter's house. That looks pretty close, doesn't it? 37 yards, I measured it. 37 yards away. And so it's pretty easy and pretty common and pretty typical. And Jesus is living at Peter's house right there. And so when he gets up in the morning, he just goes and teaches there. Then they go back there. Then large crowds gather and a lot of ministry is done right there. Let's give you a little bit of a different perspective of how things took place. Let's keep going. I'm going to rock your world a little more today just because I can. So another reason for Jesus to stay at Peter's house is real simple. Not just because he loved teaching there and wanted to reach the people there, but another reason for Peter to stay there is just for Peter to get to know Jesus a little better. For him to see him, to hear him, to watch the miracles, and to make a decision. Jesus already knew what he was going to ask Peter and James and John and Andrew and all the rest of them, but this is for them. Very, very important to get to know him so you know what you're picking, so you can make an intelligent decision. So here's a typical day. Jesus would get up early in the morning, teach in the synagogue, go back and maybe eat at, at uh, Peter's house where he's staying. Then crowds would gather and he'd heal some more and sometimes minister till late at night. And then in the morning, here's the typical morning. Jesus would get up just before daybreak because we see this all the time in the Gospels. He'd wake up, he'd spend some time alone with his heavenly father in prayer. Now, what I'm gonna give you here, it's gonna go a little bit longer and then I have to learn to shorten by next week. I realize that and I can do it. I'm going to give you six things, though, that, that true Christ followers, if you really want to be a sold-out, fully devoted follower of Christ, these things are going to be present. We'll get through them as quick as possible. The first one's coming up, so pay attention. That Jesus will model for us. Jesus gets up and spends time alone with his heavenly Father. Now, for those of, of you or those of us or any Christian that sometimes says, I don't really need that. It's not my thing. I don't need a daily quiet time. I don't, I, I don't pray that much. It's just not who I am. Well, then disobedient is who you are. You need this. And if it was good enough for the Son of God, it's probably important for us. He modeled it every single day. So we should probably take a closer look at it. I remember Martin Luther, Reformation Martin Luther. He was once asked, you know, he got up every single day at 4 a.m. and prayed till 8. I'm willing to bet some of you have never prayed more than five straight minutes in your life. Martin Luther prayed four hours from four to eight. And he was once actually asked by a, one of the monks who worked with him, Presbyterian monks that worked with him, once asked, 
how he could afford, I don't think he phrased it quite like this, but how can you waste that kind of time, basically? How can you afford to do that? Imagine how much more you could get done. How can you afford to spend that kind of time in prayer? Martin Luther just looked at him, and I bet he regretted asking him that, and he said, I can't afford not to. So he's saying the power in what God has done in my life comes from that early morning meeting with him. And the more time I spend with God, the more powerful the movement. We need to be a praying church. That's the fuel of what we do. And we've got a few, a handful of on-fire prayer warriors, but we all ought to be prayer warriors. There should be nobody in here who can't pray more than five minutes. That's your conversation time with the living God. But that's just you talking. Reading the word of God is you listening. That's even more important. So that's the first thing that was modeled here. So number one, part of following Jesus is to spend daily time alone with God. That's what a true follower is going to do. Part of really being a true follower is to spend daily time alone with God. Not weekly, daily time alone with God. Number two, part of being a follower of Jesus is to move out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. I can imagine Jesus getting up early and the crowds kind of gathering at Peter's house and Jesus isn't there and Peter and James and and John are kind of like, where is he? The crowds are getting big. We don't know where he's at, but they probably figured it out by now. In fact, let's let's show some pictures. Uh, What I want to see here is um, the kind of cartoonish map of the whole area of the sea. All right, so... What Jesus probably did is he got up early. Remember, he's staying in this area of Capernaum, and he's probably looking out to the Golan Heights or basically in this area here, and he can see the, the sun coming up over the mountains. Well, he can't go to the Golan Heights to get time alone with God because that would take several hours to get up there. And he can't go along this way because there's a lot of other villages that aren't even listed here, and the fishermen are getting up, and so he'd never get time alone with his father because he'd just be hitting village after village. So most likely what he went to was the Mount of Beatitudes. You ever heard of that? The Mount of Beatitudes. Why do they call it that? That's where he taught. taught. What? The Beatitudes. It was kind of an obvious answer. I mean, pretty sharp. Yes, it's called, it was named after what he taught. A lot of times we have the misunderstanding that Jesus probably taught the Sermon on the Mount once. Boy, I hate if I missed that one, right? Is it on tape? Is it going to be on MP3 podcast? No, I missed it. It's over. No, Jesus probably taught that over and over again. And he likely taught in one place. So he likely went up to that same place. I want you to see what it looked like. Because this is fascinating to me. My wife and I have been there too. So show the amphitheater, the natural amphitheater. uh, And bring the lights down so people can really see that here for just a moment. You know, when you read Genesis 1 and it says that um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who who in the Godhead is doing that? Hint, you got to read John 1 to see. The person of the Godhead that's physically doing the creation is Jesus. So can you imagine when Jesus is creating this? It's a stadium. It's, it's, cut in, it's naturally formed in the side of the mountain right there. And you can stand at the bottom of it and speak in a normal voice. And you can put 10,000 people on that thing and they can hear you like you're hearing me right now. Really? How do you know that? I tried it. We had a tour with about 100 people there. They sat up there and they let us take turns going down there, whoever wanted to, only about five or 10 wanted to. And me being me, I was one of them. So I went down there and wanted to hear if they could hear my big fat mouth, and they could. I'm like, Michelle, can you hear me back there at the top? I couldn't hear if she said yes or no, because I can't hear her. But she could hear me, my voice carrying, because the natural empathy. I bet Jesus created that with so much joy thousands and thousands and thousands of years earlier and just said, one day, I'm going to come out and spend time there. That's where I'm going to teach what it's all about. 
So that's where they would have been. And that's where the disciples likely went to find him. And Jesus told them at that point, he said, you know what? I'm going to not stay in Capernaum. Don't get used to this. Because I didn't just come here for you. I know you're getting comfortable. I know you're enjoying this. Jesus had been there off and on for about a year. But I've got other towns and other people that I've been called to reach. So it's time to venture out. So one of the things that, that they had to get used to was part of being a follower of Jesus is to move out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. They weren't ready to do this yet. Jesus couldn't have presented that in the first couple months. They wouldn't have wanted to leave because their mentality was, we like what we have. About 100 of us listen to Jesus teach. It's incredible. Crowds come. He heals them. He does miracles. But then they leave and we have Jesus all to ourselves. That's selfish. And that's not what a true follower does. So Jesus had to slowly get it through to them that you will move out. I have a job for you. So we pick up there. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, crowds Again, they don't form overnight, so we know that Jesus has been at this for a while. He saw two boats by the lake, that the fishermen had gone out of them, and they're washing their nets, getting into the one of boats, which was Simon's. By the way, the owners are mentioned here, so you can see that they're not just people going out to catch dinner that night. They're professional fishermen. Simon owns the boat. The other boats are owned by John and James, the brothers. Andrew and Peter own the one. There's likely other boats because it says Zebedee, John and James' father, owns some. They probably have a lot of, they got a thriving commercial fishing industry going. Keep that in mind. They know a lot about fishing. They've been doing this a while while listening to Jesus teach daily and, and watching him do miracles and staying up late. Imagine being able to talk with Jesus late at night. Incredible. You can, by the way. You can. So, they're washing their nets. Why is that included, do you think? Well, here's what happened. If you didn't wash your nets daily after you fish, every single day, and lay them out and actually pull them and stretch them out, what would happen to the nets, you think? They'd rot. Nets would rot. And it wouldn't take very long either. A couple of months, when you go out and you just get an ordinary average catch, they're going to start breaking. The fish are going to get out. But if you wash them and clean all that gunk off of there and stretch them out, then when you go back out there, they'll actually stretch out and be able to fill with more fish. If you don't do that, they will break. Why is that included there? Not for the, so you'll know more about fishing. Not so you'll know more about nets, but so that you'll know more about how Jesus works. Because Jesus can do a lot with you and I, but to do that, he's going to have to cleanse you. We're going to have to stay with our hearts clean before him. We're going to have to repent, and we will have our faith stretched before he does great big things. A lot of us, we want to move on to great big things now. We don't want to be stretched, have any pain, but we want to move on now. You're going to see why Jesus took it slower here uh, in just a moment. There's an order here, by the way. When the crowds are getting huge at this point, Jesus says, put out a little way, Peter, from the shore and it's the whole amphitheater thing again. Why do you think Jesus said, put me in the boat, and they went out 20, 30 feet, and he kept on teaching? Why would he do that? Because he doesn't like people. They're all dirty and nasty <laughs> once we get away. Kind of like me. It's why I'm up here and you're down there because I'm a, I'm a germaphobe. Why, why did he do it? Well, it's another thing where his voice carries over the water. If I were to stand right one foot in front of the first row of people there and talk, my voice would bounce off of them. You wouldn't really hear it. And if this is full and I stand right there and teach, you wouldn't hear me. But it's set up and it's built this way on purpose so that your voice can carry. And they'll do plays and productions here. And you won't even need microphones. And if you project, your voice will carry. It's a little tiny version of an amphitheater. 
And so Jesus puts out so the people will hear him. But again, there's a double thing here. That's the evangelism part. First, he asks them to go out a little bit so Peter can see and James and John can see he's going to evangelize. He's going to tell the crowds of lost people. He's going to do miracles, but he's going to teach. He's going to tell them that there's a better way. That's the evangelism part. But then later, he's going to push out and tell Peter to go out deeper because he's got a secondary lesson. After the evangelism comes discipleship. Evangelism, discipleship. Evangelism, discipleship. Guess what? It's always that order, and it's always those things. We have five G's as a church. You've seen them on the signs out there, right? Two of them are represented right there. Go. That's evangelism. Grow. That's discipleship. They go hand in hand. It amazes me how many times I talk to people in church or even pastors, and they go, we're not really about evangelism here. We're more about discipleship. And I'll say, no, you're more about disobedience is what you're about. Because you can't disciple people that aren't saved. If you're not reaching lost people, who are you discipling? Well, we're discipling ourselves. We're already saved. Well, then you're not going out in the world and getting the lost. That's the other part of it. You don't get to pick and choose. There are five purposes, Jesus said, over and over and over again. And he didn't just say them. He illustrated them. So you can't possibly miss it unless you want to miss it because you're being disobedient. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little further from land, and he sat down and taught the people. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Not just let down your nets, because they're taking up room in the boat. Let them down for a catch. Here's the problem. They've been fishing all night. Peter hasn't got much sleep, but he's kind of going, uh, well, we, we, we've been fishing. There's, there's no fish here right now. It wasn't until after Jesus told Peter to launch out a little that he told Peter to launch out a lot. Did you notice that? First go out a little, then go out a lot. Number three, write it down. True followers prove themselves faithful in the little things before God moves them on to bigger things. This is sometimes my problem. I always want to do great big things for God. And Hey, God, next week let's fill Panther Stadium and give the gospel. It'll be incredible. And I feel like God says, well, how about we finish the grand opening first? And we go through that because that's important. And we may get to the big things, but I've got, I've got to build a foundation in the littler things first. I didn't get an amen for that. Nothing, huh? That's too late. Too late. Maybe some of you can relate to this better. God, use me in a big way. Use me to give sight to the, to the blind. I pray, God, that you'll use me to, to heal the sick. I pray, God, that you will... Use me to raise the dead. I know you did it, Father. Use me and I will bring glory to your name. But God, please don't don't call me to teach the first graders in the kids' quest. And God's going, listen, if I got a choice, you or Billy Graham, I'm going with Billy. Okay, because he already did that and I raised him up a little bit. Gang, he's not going to call you to do great big things if you're not faithful in the little things. He's not going to do it. But be faithful in the little things, and he absolutely will call you to do great big things. If some of you aren't doing great big things for God, I want you to very carefully think about whether you've faithfully and joyfully done the little things. Me too. Me too. Not just you. This isn't a you sermon. It's a us sermon. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night, and we took in nothing. This is another reason I think he's known him for a while. He doesn't call him, uh, sir, uh, mister, I don't know. We haven't really met. He says, Master which means rabbi or teacher. So a little bit of sarcasm in here, though. Later, Peter's going to refer to him as even the son of God and most often as Lord. But here it's master, which he uses sometimes too. 
which again means teacher or rabbi. But I think he's kind of using it here to go, uh, teacher, when it comes to teaching, you're great. So on spiritual things, I'm, I'm going to defer to you. But I've been fishing all night, and I am a fisherman. Say it with me, Jesus. I'm a fisherman. I'm a professional fisherman, and you don't even have a pole with a hook on it. So let me do the fishing, and you do the teaching. I'm so I think that's kind of implied in there. But he also has seen him, listened to him, and watched him do miracles. So even though he's not the fisherman, Peter bites his tongue and says, it's not what I'm used to, it's not what I've been taught, but because you say so, I'll do it. No questions asked. Master, you're, you're the teacher, I'll do it, even in this area of my life where I, where I think I, I know more than you do. On your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. By the way, this is important. The Greek word for break here is not what we, the way we use break. This means beginning to break. It means the nets were straining. I don't know why they didn't just put that in there. Maybe some of your versions do, but straining is important because if they'd have broke, then that other whole uh, wash the nets and stretch them thing would have been irrelevant. They're beginning to break, starting to strain. Just like you and I. The Lord needs to keep us clean. He needs to stretch our faith and then we can take incredible burdens and take incredible loads and do incredibly powerful things that we can stretch further than we ever thought we could stretch without breaking, without actually breaking. Number four, true followers go through regular cleaning and stretching. Regular cleaning and stretching. Verse seven, they signal to their partners in the other boat to come and help. That's James and John, come help us. And they came and they filled both boats. So that the boats began to sink. That's a lot of fish. <laughs> the boat is about 23, 24 feet long and about nine feet wide. They've actually recovered one of the boats from that era. It was so deeply submerged in the mud of, of the Sea of Galilee that it was actually preserved for a couple thousand years. Right in that time. And you can see it in, in a museum. I mean, it's pretty bad shape, but you can tell the shape of it and design of it. Pretty cool. So you can see it would have taken a lot to drag one of these things down. So the other people came when they were called, and they helped with this great harvest. So the harvest is truly plentiful with Jesus around, isn't it? That's why we need to pray and include Jesus in the grand opening next week. Because we can probably create an event next week, right? But if you want a harvest and a movement, God's got to be at the center of it. Otherwise, it's just an event. I'm not interested in pastoring an event. I'm not interested in pastoring a church of weekly events. But I'd be thrilled to head up a movement. So they join him in this, and this is real cool. No questions asked. Listen, there's too many Lone Ranger Christians in the United States. We seem to have invented this thing. It's disobedient. The Christian life was never meant to live alone. It's meant to live in community. Most of the lessons Jesus will drive home with the disciples are done on the two-year camping trip where he watches them. Not so much on the teaching, more in the living and watching Jesus. And mimicking him and following him. Number five, true followers never go it alone. If you're not in a life group at this church, you need to find one and get in. What if I don't like it? What if the people are weirdies? Then find another one. They won't get their feelings hurt. The leaders are actually not weirdies. They're mature enough to know that they just want you in a life group. So if that one doesn't fit, then try another one. But don't give up because you are not meant to, do, to go it alone. And as a launch team, we all need to be in groups. In fact, I think God is calling many of you to start a group. We need three or four more life groups by next week. Thanks. Moving on to the next point. <laughs> True followers never go it alone. But they, listen, they share life 
not just information. Have you noticed in churches we gather for one hour on Sunday, an hour and a half if you're with me, and we, a lot of churches, we just share information. Hey, I got some more information about Jesus this week. Feel a little bit better about that. Then we go and live totally separate lives until we gather again for one hour and share information. True followers share more than information. They share life. But when Simon Peter saw it, now here's that crazy part. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Oh, Lord. Now it's not master anymore, is it? Now it's Lord. Something changed. And gang, Peter's seen some pretty incredible things. Like what? He's been with Jesus here. He saw Jesus turn water to Welch's grape juice at the wedding. Remember that? If you're Baptist, wine, if you're a realist, to what he turned it to. He's seen miracles. He didn't react like this. Jesus didn't ask. Jesus hasn't asked a thing from Peter, James, John, or Andrew for a year. He hasn't asked anything. He's about to. You know why? Why do you think? Why is he going to ask him now? Yeah, who said that? Is that you, Gary? Who said that? Admit it. <laughs> you are right. That's as simple as that. And he knows your heart. He's looking at it. They're ready. Peter's right. He wasn't ready for a year. He's ready now. Otherwise, why do you look at a heavy net full of fish and follow your knees and say, please get away? Because something just happened. It's the next thing I want you to write down. This is so key. It's a beautiful ministry moment. Number six, true followers don't try to earn it. They just finally realize who they are and who God is. That's what happened with Peter. They finally realize who they are and who God is. You're God. I'm a sinful man. I shouldn't even be with you. You just spent a year of your life with me? This is so overwhelming to Peter. He finally gets it, and it crushes him. He's broken now. Now he's ready to be used. No one can be greatly used until they've first been greatly broken. That's absolutely true. For some of you, you look at that and go, well, then I don't want to be greatly used. Well, there's good news if that's you. You won't be. But if you want to be greatly used and you're being crushed right now and you don't know why, because God loves you and wants to greatly use you for things you've always wanted to do, but first, your will has to be broken to his. First, your will has to be broken to his. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid, for now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything and followed him. And this isn't a sermon, gang, about quitting your job, following Jesus. I mean, they go back to fishing a little bit later. They're still following Jesus. It's about stop putting Jesus number one, stop putting him number three, stop putting him on for an hour on Sunday and put him at the center of your life. That means, remember Kurt Warner, greatest football player of all time, and you can't argue with that? Remember him? Well, when he won the Super Bowl, there was one reporter that got annoyed with him. Well, okay, all the Christian stuff. You know, what about, you know, football and all this? And Kurt Warner stopped him. I'll never forget this. And he said, listen, you don't get it. That's not peripheral for me, the Christian stuff. I'm a Christian first, a Christ follower who happens to play football. Isn't that beautiful? That was his moment to shine. It was all about Kurt. And he said, it's not all, I just happen to play football. And God put me here to tell people about him. And this is my moment to tell people about him and you're not gonna stop me. What do you do for a living? Doesn't really matter. Hey, I'm an investment banker. No, you're not. You're a Christ follower who happens to be an investment banker. I'm a doctor. No, you're not. 
Not as a Christ follower, you're not. You're a Christ follower who happens to be a physician. I'm a Christ follower who happens to be a pastor. No matter what you do as a believer, that's secondary. When Christ is central and you've been broken to realize that, you're ready to be used to do great things. And I've met most of you. I know some of you better than I know others, but I know a lot of you have been broken and you're ready to be used to do great big things. That's why I don't have any problem believing God's going to do great big things in this church. We'll begin to see it next week. Be faithful. Invite. Don't leave it to others. All of us should bring somebody next week. Let's pray. Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to be obedient. Help us to be true followers, Lord. Help us to be generous. Help us to be everything that you are, Lord. If we're going to model you, we can't just learn about you. We need to imitate you joyfully. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us. See you next week.